Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Mental Models Podcast. We would like you to continue to support us and uh, our efforts here and show us that uh, you do appreciate uh, the information that we share. Uh, and you can do so by buying our book, Understanding Behavioral Bias. It's available on Amazon. And, and if you do buy it, uh, what would really help us out is if you could leave a review. It's available in paperback copy and on Kindle. Both are pretty good value. And we think that uh, you can really explore some of the topics that we touch on here in greater depth. Thank you very much. And we hope you continue to enjoy the Mental Models Podcast. We're back with the Mental Models Podcast. And now we are going to do part two of the basic human value theory. And in this one, we're going to actually try to apply... Uh, some of the architecture that we talked about in our previous uh, podcast on this topic. Right. So if you have, uh, if you're joining us on this episode, uh, be sure to check out episode number one of the basic human values theory in which we talk about Shalom Schwartz's um, exploration of cross-cultural values and how they are universal to um, people around the world. And we show them both as, at a societal level and critically at an individual level. And so let's actually start there with this. If you uh, haven't yet checked out the show notes, we have uh, a, a very nice pie chart of these values that Shalom Schwartz had organized years ago in his cross-cultural survey work. And um, the major areas, there are really four quadrants of that. Openness to change, which uh, offsets conservation. So that's kind of about our willingness to break out on our own versus stay within a group. And then self-enhancement values versus self-transcendence values. And we'll spend a little more time on that area today, those two sectors of this pie. Um, and I wanted to lead this off by reminding you, um, I had done a study with Adam Teed, Yellen Rakish, and Daniel Mark that was published last year in 2019 in the journal Social Neuroscience. And what we were doing is really looking at the level of the brain. So, so taking a deep dive on the individual, the science of the individual, to see whether there was evidence that these two uh, self-transcendent versus self-enhancement values were actually offsetting and would have different representations in some way in our brain activation within a brain imaging study. And it was a very uh, surprising result in some ways that self-transcendent values, um, so this was uh, the set setup is people are, are basically rating uh, different activities that represent self-transcendence versus uh, self-enhancement values. Um, and we're looking at how the brain activates. So the self-transcendence, things like uh, being willing to participate in helping the homeless through uh, working to, with others to, to, to build housing um, tended to activate more of the medial frontal lobe classic values cortex. So that, that's what you find with a lot of different types of rewards. Uh, abstract rewards and basic rewards activate that main area. 
and that was active over the self enhancement or achievement driven sorts of things like attending seminars to improve your own knowledge or gaining professional recognition. So in some sense, at the level of the brain, it seemed like those self-transcendent values in, in, had, a more imp, had a greater impact in a way. We, we, we may find those actually to be more valuable, and that was when you rated your willingness to participate in those kind of activities, um, not just when you, you think those are valuable. It's interesting when we think about uh, the relationship between the self-enhancement and the self-transcendent values. Uh, you know, if you think about being in the position where you might be able to be benevolent uh, or uh, provide for a universal good, uh, that tends to suggest that the person that's providing that benefit is in a greater position of power relative to the person that's receiving that benefit. Uh, so uh, to some degree, you can see someone uh, who ironically is trying to bolster their own sense of power by acting in a universal or benevolent way. Uh, so uh, because it does draw this clear line of distinction. Yeah, but the key thing here is we're not all one or the other. What the tendency was is people will represent both of those uh, to be a well-rounded well-adjusted individual, you have to think about your own uh, self uh, goals and, and be goal-directed in, in, in sometimes a self-focused way. But ideally, you also want to have a bigger impact on society. So there's a developmental component to this as well. We tend toward maybe those self-enhancement uh, activities when we're younger, and they're almost a precursor to having a bigger impact at the self-transcendent level. Yeah, this kind of draws back to a lot of the theories that Adam Smith had initially when he came up with uh, the, the Wealth of Nations and uh, the notion that uh, acting in your own self-interest could actually be a benefit to the greater good, right? It's the idea, you know, the idea that uh, somebody uh, tending to create value for themselves uh, in some area in which they have some specialization that can help society as a whole. Uh, and uh, one great example that we've talked about a number of times and actually had a show uh, based on on Bill Gates and, and a special that he did on Netflix. Bill Gates is a really, really good reflection of these different values and kind of his transformation that he had uh, through the course of his life, being focused more on self-enhancement early and then later on self-transcendence uh, once he got to a position where uh, incrementally self-enhancement didn't really make a lot of sense for him. So young uh, Bill Gates focused on creating Microsoft, this company that now is you know, pervasive all around us, providing us with value, with great tools like Microsoft Word, Excel, uh, then of course, you know, Azure, the Xbox, all of these different uh, great products that um, allowed Bill Gates to become very wealthy, but at the same point in time, provided the user of, of those products with great utility. Uh, and uh, once he you know, got to that level uh, where effectively he was the richest man in the world, 
uh, he shifted his personal focus uh, from this self-enhancement area of value towards self-transcendent and creating the Gates Foundation where their focus, of course, is providing the greatest good for the greatest number of people, regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnicity or any sort of background. The notion that every human life is of equivalent value. And Bill Gates is so unique. It's it's worth really pointing this out as he's one of the the strange examples here where um, in the pie chart from Shalom Schwartz, he very perfectly represents the dichotomy of power versus universalism, which are, are the least correlated. They're right across from one another, meaning they're the least related. And uh, it didn't it didn't emerge all at once. He, as you pointed out, he gained his power through acting in a in a very self-focused way. And he's he's really pretty um, goal directed on on building Microsoft. And if you remember the days of Microsoft, it, they weren't known for being uh, you know a universal benevolent group. It's, it was a powerful company that got that way by um, really taking care of its own house. Uh, we got into this uh, quite a bit in episode twenty eight, Inside Bill's Brain which was all about the uh, Netflix special, which was a great uh, look into Bill Gates's life history, as you pointed out. And kind of later, because he had attained such great power, the Gates Foundation can focus on that universalism piece, which is thought of as the highest uh, human moral um, stage. Uh, If you think about someone like Lawrence Kohlberg, with his influential moral theory, um, only a subset of people ever reach that point where they can think at that universal level that what's the greatest possible good for the most people. And the Gates Foundation is so focused on not just the local Seattle area where they live, it's very much anywhere in the world where there's the greatest need. So um, that's one of those fascinating examples where you can you can see very high power that in some sense enables great universalism, uh, representing the two reverse correlated parts of that theory. Yeah, it's some, uh, the, the, the relationships here between these really are intriguing in that, uh, you know, if, if one wants to have the emblems of power, right, to be able to, if, if you're in a position where you can act universally, that really does reflect that you've achieved uh, this level of self-enhancement. And then the, the importance of these values for human survival are critical. You know, we don't live in isolation. We live as members within a group. And so to have a notion of that, like for instance, if you're in a tough spot and I can reach out and provide you with good or, or help uh, to help you out of that tough spot. Maybe someday in the future, I'll be in a tough spot and you'll, you or someone like you will act uh, with more benevolence and more of a universal notion and provide some assistance to me. And this goes back to really core emotions and tribal living, right? So one of the things we most value is uh, we all benefit. It's a win-win when you engage in that kind of helping activity. And the idea is that I'll reciprocate it later, right? So you may be taking some uh, of your own time and effort 
on my behalf and I'll repay you with that in the future. And that gets our oxytocin levels uh, brewing and we, we, everyone feels good about the situation. Um, and if I were to kind of rip you off and not help you later, that would be emotionally traumatic uh, to, a, a, to the core of your being. I mean, that, that's really, a, a, it's a major part of the way people think is that, that helping behavior needs to be returned. Uh, I wanted to bring up the example of Jane Goodall as sort of a comparison to Bill Gates. And, and unlike Bill Gates, uh, I think Jane Goodall started with uh, relatively low amounts of achievement and power. She wasn't high on the self-enhancement part of this when she was doing work with chimpanzees, uh, essentially figuring out how uh, you know little groups of other primates functioned and, and relaying that back to the scientific community. That was, you know, she was not doing this for self-aggrandizement. Um, however, um, by by focusing on really that benevolence piece of the pie, um, it started to turn into more of a universalism uh, dynamic for her, and it went along with with increased power. So she became very famous in some sense by engaging in the benevolence activities. She therefore gained on the power and self-enhancement piece, which then enabled her to do all kinds of things at that same universalist level that Bill Gates seems to operate at now. Um, and if you look Jane Goodall's work up now, she's doing uh, things that are well beyond conservation of animals. I mean, she's, she's really doing all sorts of environmental uh, benefits to the, to the earth in general. And that's only possible because she really started with the chimpanzee work at that very um, basic uh, sort of piece of the pie. And so the point there is that uh, there's not one way uh, that we develop. There are different routes to, to gain power and ultimately to have a greater sense of good. Yes, and when we move forward... Uh, and we think about uh, this with respect to openness to change and conser- conservation. Uh, you know, among all of these various values, we can see embedded within them uh, something that benefits humanity uh, and the, basically the ability of us to move forward as uh, a species uh, because uh, these values are conducive to our survival, right? So when we think about uh, openness to change and and conservation, you can often kind of relate this to some degree to traditional notions of conservatism and liberalism. The world changes, and if you think about the world today versus what it was like 100 years ago, what it was like uh, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, progressively we've seen pretty significant shifts and uh and changes in society and uh, among economies and if you were just rooted in conservatism and maintaining the status quo then we probably would not have been able to see uh that level of development a good example of that is the dark ages basically uh after the fall of the Roman Empire uh, up until the Renaissance, there was not much change from a technological standpoint or a, a, a sociological standpoint within Europe. It was pretty consistent uh, during that long period of time 
uh, which was you know roughly a thousand years, uh, where uh, we didn't see an awakening or a, a shift towards more openness to change, more liberalism, until we had the Renaissance, which followed you know the devastation that occurred uh, with the bubonic plague, where people started to question more of traditional thought. And all of that eventually progressed over time uh, with this push and pull uh, of liberalism versus conservatism, keeping things the way they are, more traditional, uh, to having more uh, radical change uh, that adjust to growth in society. Uh, you know, one of the, a great, a great uh, uh, picture of this, and it's not just these values don't just shift uh, as society develops, uh, but also uh, as we enter different stages within our life. Uh, William Churchill once famously said something along the lines of, you know, show me a young man who's a conservative and I'll show you someone who has no heart. Show me a, an older man uh, who is a liberal and I'll show you someone who doesn't have a now that's politically charged and everything along those lines, but it does illustrate that our values change as time goes by. Uh, and uh, I think this is fascinating from the perspective of uh, how important, and you can go through each and every one of these slices of the pie and see how they're important for uh, the development of humans the pres the preservation of our own good yeah and i would say if you're a, if you're a parent what's striking is how much of a child's personality is there without you really facilitating and especially if you have more than one child you really notice wow there are these radical differences that come about just because of uh, the genetic makeup interacting with the particular environment of the child and uh, so that's an interesting perspective as well. How much of this is sort of an inborn personality style that's kind of baked in, as they say, where you just people are tend toward uh, being a little bit higher on, on one of these dimensions uh, versus the other. That's a, that's certainly true, and we can get into that a little bit, like lifespan uh, history of of kind of being more conservative or being more open to change. And some we can all think of outliers that are just enormously robust on either of those. But I think what's fascinating, some of what you talked about just now, is the the uh, plasticity, that ability to shift, um, because all of us have these capabilities. And the critical thing often is the environment we're in, just as the Dark Ages had certain precursors that led to that. Um, and then the Renaissance had precursors that led us out of that. So you see this both at the personal level and at the societal level. And one thing to keep in mind is um, it's always going to be dependent upon our circumstances. Sometimes we need to act conservatively when resources are getting scarce or when uh, the group is, is showing tendencies of breaking up. And other times we need to act um, with an openness to change, and this is true of companies as well. You know that, that some a business has been going very, very, very stable trajectory for a long time, but um, disruptive technology has come in, and now it's time to change. And so you have to be able to uh, focus on those um, adjustments. And so it's a fascinating topic. We can see it both at the individual level and at the societal level in many different cases. 
Yeah, no, it's it. it you could talk about it from a legal perspective. Uh, the notion of the Constitution, where everybody looks at the framers' intent and they're trying to uh, focus on the law as it's written, which is a very conservative notion. And then the notion of it being a living document, you know, something that is to be interpreted based off changes within the times. It's also very, and, and, and it's no uh, wonder that the uh, conservative, the Republicans, tend to be more in favor of uh, the document as written and uh, not having a liberal interpretation of what the document means in terms of today's times uh, versus the, the other, the more liberal interpretation that is held by the Democrats, that it should be a living, a living document. So a fun exercise, if you're tracking this, is to look at the pie chart uh, generated by Shalom Schwartz, and you could kind of see where, where pie pieces are next to one another those are closely aligned values. And with a two-party system, we sometimes shoehorn certain values together that maybe don't fit quite as well on the pie chart. Um, but when you only have the two parties, they're both you kind of need both sides represented. And so um, just for fun, it, it might be interesting to take a look at that pie chart and, and try to look at political values and whether they align, and especially where there might be some discontinuities where uh, one party is representing sort of uh, opposing values. And I think that that does happen, but the party line is never quite fully coherent because it, it's you, both parties have to own certain sets of uh, values that, that don't always align. It's interesting that uh, when we think about this in terms of business, uh, there are certain trends that are uh, basically underway, there's these ESG principles that are starting to be focused on. And it's a big trend that's actually started within Europe. Uh, when we think about uh, when we think about the traditional notions of corporations, the ultimate responsibility of the board of directors within a corporation has historically been, to uh, benefit the shareholders of the corporation and to seek maximum profit. But now there's a new trend that has uh, started to emerge, this environment, environmental, social, and uh, governance focus known as ESG largely has started within Europe and pretty significant pension flows are starting to move into uh, corporations that have high ESG ratings. So where traditionally among corporations, the self-enhancement uh, focus has been the predominant uh, movement uh, for them and their shareholders, there's now this self-transcendence movement towards benevolence and universalism, more focus upon the environment uh, and the place of the corporate citizen within society that is being emphasized. And actual capital is moving in that direction. That means that uh, traditional companies that are focused on fossil fuels, like oil companies, they're seeing a lot less capital flow because of these mandates that are being held by various pension funds. Uh, and various investors 
that are focused on these issues as they see as being incremental values that have not traditionally been focused on in the corporate setting. Yeah. So when you analyze a company, you can kind of also consider those factors. And I think you're correct that we uh, often do put a high value on these um, sort of self-transcendent kinds of uh, operations. And that's probably a good thing for society in general. It sort of reinforces the greater good in some sense. And again, it's we see that same interesting factor where power and sort of self-enhancement enables a greater amount of self-transcendent kind of universalism uh, and benevolence. So it's all a big cycle. Um, there's no... Uh, one answer, uh, you can kind of be higher or lower on a variety of these, and society probably needs people to be representing these things as they are uh, sort of counterweights. And again, the circumstances will come up in which uh, you need to exercise uh, one of these values that's not normally your personality style. And so we learn a lot about ourselves when we put, our, put ourselves into new positions where we have to do something a little bit different. And when we pull this back again uh, and uh, think about it from an investing perspective, uh, these values are going to drive our decision-making. They're going to drive the decision-making of counterparties. Like, for instance, when you're making a decision to invest uh, within an energy company that is using fossil fuels, you've got to understand that there is a movement away from allocating capital towards those types of business because of the ESG flows. And those ESG flows are, again, they're becoming more prominent within the United States. Uh, there is a pushback uh, that I have reflexively on it is because who makes the determination as to what is benevolent or what is universally beneficial? Who is it that, it, and it, what, what happens now is we have these rating agencies uh, that are actually come out and or these organizations that'll assign an ESG score, right? But who? How do you appropriately measure that when we're talking about something like uh, the meeting the needs of the shareholders, at, which is the traditional view of what a corporation should do? There's profit and loss. It's very easy to measure that. But how do you measure how environmentally friendly a particular company is? And maybe when we're thinking about it, like in terms of their focus on the environment, uh, how, 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 much, how important is that relative to the governance of the business, which is something else? And they look at things like women's representation on the board as being an important compensation or portion of that notion. Uh, how diverse is the corporation? Uh, th things of those notion uh, of that of that notion. Uh, how do we assign how how valuable that is relative to an environmental value? Right, and this gets into the real complexity of, the, of these things. Uh, it's rare that you can just say, "Well, this is all about power." It's not the world's not that simple, and the research also mimics that same thing. How do you score this in a research study? The reality is you take a survey with a whole variety of questions that don't ask you directly, you know, how benevolent are you? Because everyone would say very. Right. right? <laughs> what you do is approach it from the side and kind of get a sensible rating out of the actual activities that you would endorse or, or claim to uh, find valuable. So um, that's really what 
what's kind of under the hood of this is really how do we respond to those different circumstances? And so like many things in mental models, we don't stay the same because the world's changing around us. And a lot of what we reflect is, is sort of because we are active in a certain area and have some type of influence at that moment. Ultimately, if we're trying to come to uh, how we can use this as investors and assuming that our objective is to maximize our personal profit in that arena, it's really important to think about the motivations of the counterparties that you're going to be dealing with and the management of the companies that you have. So when you look at a manager and they focus on Uh, more of the self-transcendence values with respect to the company, the company's spot or or member as a uh, contributor within society, their responsibilities not only to the shareholders but to the employees and to the environment and the community as a whole, then uh, you can see what efforts they've taken to capture that and express it And it'll help you see if, for instance, they may be a beneficiary of some of these ESG flows, which could be the next big trend in terms of uh, how capital flows within the stock market. Uh, Also, you, you may look at the age of a manager and have questions as to whether they're going to have the dynamism to deal with uh, something that is uh, that is changing very rapidly within the industry that they're competing in, or if they've been there for a long period of time, they've done business in, cer- in a certain way, and they're going to be slow to react to very dynamic change. Uh, they're going to have more conservatism in their focus. Uh, but I think you can explore the nature, and you could possibly even diagram each CEO that you evaluate within a company and say, what are their, their values as a manager? Uh, and how are they going to fall within uh, this, this pie chart? Uh, and what would you anticipate their actions may be toward changes you see on the horizon for the company or industry that they're working within? Right. And this is uh, maybe a good place to wrap up. So definitely we encourage you to check out part one of the basic human values discussion that we did in a previous podcast, if you haven't done so already. Uh, Also check out the show notes for uh, an example of that pie chart we've been discussing from Shalom Schwartz. It's a valuable tool. And you can probably evaluate companies, your investments, or yourself or your political affiliations um, through that lens, which I will, I will be doing that uh, as well, just out of personal curiosity. If you're very curious about this topic, make sure to also check out our prior episode on values, uh, which was podcast number three. And also check out our podcast on Inside Bill Gates's Brain, which was uh, a Netflix series, and we discussed um, differences in uh, Gates uh, values over his life, linking that that power to that universalism, which is um, a pretty 
amazing combination. If you're very, very interested in this, I, I'll also link my uh, paper in social neuroscience with Adam Teague, Yelena Rakesh, and Daniel Mark, in which we looked at this at a deep dive at the level of cortical activation in relation to these uh, values. So this is a really deep topic. Uh, we thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, you'll have a great day. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-starred book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.